Good morning and welcome to West Cohasset Chapel. My name is Patrick Mathias and I'm an elder here. It's my privilege to fill the pulpit this Sunday. I'm married to Julie Mathias. We have three adult children. We have one daughter-in-law, we have a granddaughter, and we've got another daughter-in-law to be in a couple of weeks. Julie and I celebrated our 29th wedding anniversary last week. And that's a testimony to the grace of God and to the loving kindness of my wife. As most of you know, our pastor Joe, Joe Franzone, is on sabbatical this summer. And in his absence, the pulpit will be filled by the elders of the church and some of the missionaries that we support here at West Cohasset. Though there may be a lot of different men speaking from the pulpit, all of us will be speaking from the same book. Our theme, A Summer in the Psalms, is a continuation of last year's directive to open the book of Psalms, to read from it, to preach from it, and to learn from it as a congregation. Before I get started, will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for life and breath and every good thing we have. Nothing we have that is good comes from anywhere except from you. For that we praise you. This morning we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as a local church, to open your word, to read from it, and to learn from it as you teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for those you've gifted with the ability to lead us in songs that worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for listening to us and answering the prayers and the petitions we bring to you. Only you can change things, so we bring our request to you, knowing you can change things. This morning, as I speak to this congregation from your word, I pray for wisdom and discernment, and I pray that I may be able to clearly communicate the truth of your word. Help them to understand your truth, and let your word be powerful in all of us, that we may be changed, may be turned in some way, to become more of what you want us to be, so we may be able to do the things you call us to do, for your glory and honor. Amen. Well, I'd like to encourage you all to do a couple of things this morning while you're listening to the message. First, there are um, Bibles underneath your chair and in the chair underneath the chair in front of you. And I really encourage you to keep your Bibles open as I say things and read and reread the verses that I'm speaking from. Look on to see if what I say matches up with the verses in the Scripture. This is always a prudent thing to do. Second, you'll notice on the back of your bulletin there's an outline of my message. This will help you follow along, and it also gives you a place to write in notes. There are pens located in the seat pockets in front of you for this very purpose. Please feel free to read and write while I'm speaking. Some opening thoughts. The Psalms are songs, <clears throat> but they're prayers in the form of songs. This prayer book, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it, is so important it should be prayed through several times a year. That's right, Bonhoeffer suggests this collection is not just to be read through, but to be prayed through. The book of Psalms was so important that many in the early church memorized the entire David, as the book of Psalms was referred to. In one of the eastern churches, memorizing the entire book of Psalms was a prerequisite for pastoral office. The book of Psalms impregnated the life of early Christianity. More important, though, as Jesus died on the cross, the last words he uttered... Into your hands I commit my spirit, came from Psalm 31, 5. 
This is the book of the Bible we will preach from here at West Cohasset this summer. Please come along on the journey week by week as we learn to read and study and pray through the Psalms over the next three months. Our prayer is that we learn to walk closely with our God as we learn to pray the words that Jesus prayed in the book of Psalms. Some history. Psalm 90 was written by Moses, making this the oldest of all the Psalms. Scholars believe it was penned sometime after the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt. Moses wrote two other songs, a praising song found in Exodus 15 and an instructing song in Deuteronomy 32. But Psalm 90 is different than those other two songs, for this one is called a prayer. It's supposed, according to Matthew Henry, that this psalm was penned upon the occasion of the sentence passed on Israel in the wilderness for their unbelief their murmuring and their rebellion, that their carcasses should fall in the wilderness, that they should be wasted away by a series of miseries for 38 years together, and that none of them who were then of age should enter Canaan, the promised land. Moses probably wrote this this prayer to be used daily, Henry goes on to say, by the people in their tents, or at least by the priests in their tabernacle services during their tedious fatigue in the wilderness. It's a contrast between God's eternal nature and the frailty of mankind. Our time on earth is limited, and we need to use that time wisely, not living for ourselves for the moment, but with eternity in mind. Psalm 90 is a psalm that teaches us about the origin of death, sin. This sin is is inborn in every human, from Adam to us. Those who never think of death or of the tough times we all go through During this tough life on earth, those people lose out big time. Those who just eat, drink, and be happy are senseless fools, according to Martin Luther, caring nothing for God's grace or his help to all who call on his name. Psalm 90, then, is most importantly a prayer. In times of crisis, the leaders of ancient Israel would gather the people together and fervently articulate their crisis and prayer to God. They sought his his intervention and his deliverance from the crisis at hand. This is the kind of setting from which Psalm 90 arose. So if you haven't gotten your Bibles out, if you'd open them up to Psalm 90, you'll find that on page 424 in the Bibles below you or in front. And we're going to read uh, Psalm 90 together. I'll read it out loud. You guys can read it quietly. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is seventy years, or eighty if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, 
that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So this psalm can be broken into three parts. Verses 1 through 6 illustrate the difference between the permanence of God with man's frailty. Verses 7 through 12 are referred to as man's complaint. And verses 13 through 17 focus on the petition or the prayer. So the first section, man's frailty versus God's permanence, verse 1 through 6. Verse 1 focuses on stability. God is a reliable refuge, and Moses reminds his readers that this has been true for generations. It's just as true for us. Our God is the same yesterday and today and forever, it says in Hebrews 13.8. Verse 2 tells us that before there was a world, before there was the earth, there was God. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Time does not control God. He's not bound by time. For us, time is everything. Our lives are but a blink and they're finished on this earth. It's difficult for our minds even to understand that God has always been, he is now, and he always will be. Verse 3 reminds us that we're not permanent like God. We have a real end looming in front of us. God's forever, but we will return to dust. There's a definite end coming, to our finite bodies at least. And with the end of our bodies comes the end of us doing God's work, the work that he's planned for us. But more about that a little later. Verse 4 continues the theme of time, and it illustrates how differently God and humans view time. To God, a thousand years are like a day. To humans, a thousand years is a long time. A thousand years? Compare that to the history of the United States. Our whole country, the way it is now, has only been around for fewer than 250 years. Verses 5 and 6 emphasize the radical difference between us and God in this matter. God's permanent and powerful. Mankind is frail. We are likened to the grass in a field. We spring up with the dew of the morning, but by the evening we're withered up. Our lives are over in the blink of an eye. Man's complaint, verses 7 through 12. In verse 7, we get a glimpse of the mind of this frail creation called man. They are consumed and terrified. What are they consumed and terrified by? God's indignation. Indignation is defined as righteous anger, strong displeasure at something unjust. Doesn't this make sense? A perfect God showing indignation towards sinful man. Yes, and this indignation could prove tragic for our race, And it would have if not for the plan to send a Savior, someone to intercede on our behalf to redeem us. But more about that a bit later as well. In verse 8, the writer complains it's only the sin and the disobedience of his people that God sees, and therefore they experience the oppression of God. Into verse 9, this continues. Because all God sees is the sin of his people, all they experience is the wrath of God, and because of this their lives are like One long moan. I know this is not a very flattering look at the life of a human being on this big earth. But before you tune out because of the bad news, think about the truth of this and how bad it could be. Verse 8 points out that God sees our secret sins. He sees everything. 
we may be able to con our way through life and fake out the people around us. We may sin secretly in our minds, might sin secretly in our hearts and in what we see and in what we think. God sees all this and he knows all of it, and yet he lets us keep on living, giving us the freedom to choose to follow him or to follow our own ways. But for how long? Verse 10 reminds us that our lives are short, 70 to 80 years, and these years we live will be filled with woes. Yes, there are times, seasons in our lives where it seems like we go from one difficult situation to the next. It seems like our lives are filled, as the psalmist writes, with trouble and sorrow. And this is the lot for all people. My dear friend Doug used to remind me of this often, telling me that no one goes through life unscathed. But he also encouraged me to remember that we're not alone. We're held in the arms of a loving God. We learn that God cares for us in 1 Peter 5-7 as we're taught to cast all of our cares on Christ because he cares for us. In verses 11 and 12, man's complaint starts to transition into prayer. That's always the best thing. To complain to God is to make our mistakes his fault, to question his plan for our lives. How ridiculous for a blade of grass to question the maker of the universe. And yet that's what we do when we, like the psalmist, complain about our circumstances to God. This section ends with the prayer for wisdom to be able to reflect on such a short life and to be able to live it fully. For the Hebrew, the heart was the center of the will, center of the intellect, and so a wise heart would help people deal well with the frail and the brief life before them. This section of Psalm 90 makes it very clear that humans do not control their lives with any specific skills or techniques. Rather, God is the one who created, and he's the one who gives life. He's the one who controls all things. Man's prayer or petition, verses 13 through 17. This last section, verses 13 through 17, conclude our psalm by moving to prayer or petition. In verse 13, the writer asks God to relent, to have compassion on them. The term used for the request for God to relent is the traditional term used for repenting. The psalmist asks God here to turn a 180 and to have compassion. Things are now moving in the right direction. The sinful, frail man is asking his creator to forgive and to have mercy. This is the right thing at the right time by the right party. Verse 13 also includes the traditional Israelite lament, How long, O Lord? The hope of Israel is to once again rejoice and praise God. So in verse 14, the whole community petitions for God's steadfast love. They know their life and their future depend upon the grace of God. Verse 15 returns to the theme of time with the prayer that God would grant the people as many days and years of joy as they have had of trouble. Their hope is that God will intervene, we read in verse 16, on their behalf, both for this generation and the next. Psalm 90 ends with a prayer for the favor of God so that fruitfulness may come from the community's work. Verse 17 ends with the repetition of that same prayer, and it seems to carry an expectant tone. The community of Israel is coming to God and asking him for help in the middle of all their troubles and all their woes. In the middle of a troubled life, it seems like the only place we can go for help is the place we should have gone in the first place, to God. 
the only one who can really do anything for us, sometimes is the last place we go for help. And yet, he helps us. The hymn of Isaac Watts summarizes Psalm 90 quite well. I practice singing this for you guys, but I'm just going to read the words. I don't think you really like that much. Our God and, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy past, and our eternal home. Be thou our guard while life shall last in our eternal home. Application. Verses 12 and 17 seem to jump out to me and to most of the commentators I've been reading. I think that's because both have to do with our application of the psalm. Verse 12, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And verse 17, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The first take-home thought comes from verse 12, that we may apply our hearts, our very lives, unto wisdom, not to folly, not to foolishness, not to acquiring knowledge or fame or fortune, no, to wisdom. The beginning of wisdom, Solomon says in Proverbs 1.7, is to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Teach us, O God, to gain your wisdom. That wisdom God wants us to have, and he wants us to ask him for it. James writes that we should ask God for wisdom. In James 1.5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it, wisdom, will be given to you. James and the rest of the early followers of Christ spent their lives bringing the gospel message to the unbelieving world, to the people who didn't know God, and desperately needed to know that Jesus, the Christ, had come to earth. That the Christ, God's Son, lived a perfect life on earth, and he died a death he did not deserve, so all people, sinners, could live a life in heaven, a life they did not deserve. But Jesus had paid the penalty their sins deserved, and God counted men as righteous. All men who believe in what Jesus did, who believe that his death paid it all, are worthy to be called sons of God. Paul writes in Romans 10.13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, John writes in John 1.12 and 13, Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of human descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Yes, wisdom seeks after things like these. Wisdom ponders these things. Men and women who are wise think these things through. And that's my prayer for all who are listening to my voice right now. Thought two. The second take-home comes from verse 17. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses repeats that last part of the last verse. Now, if you've spent any time studying God's word, you know that if something is repeated, you better scrutinize it. It must be important to be in the Bible, but if it is repeated in the Bible, well, we'll, we better look at it twice as long and twice as hard. What work is the psalmist talking about? The work of God that his servants perform. People's lives are so short, short like the blade of grass that thrives in the damp morning, but withers in the heat of the day. But God is forever. 
and the work we do for him is also forever. But what is this work that will last? It's the work that puts Christ and his gospel first, not our needs and desires, but his. Pastor Joe likes to say this on the matter. Put Christ and his glory before man and his need. Let's listen also to the words of Charles Spurgeon. Since the Lord abides forever the same, we trust our work in his hands. And we feel that since it is far more his work than ours, he will secure it. When we have withered like grass, our holy service, like gold and silver and precious stones, will survive the fire. Yes, the gospel of Christ shines through a psalm written by Moses 1,400 years before Christ was even born. Let's pray to God for wisdom to use our brief days in a way that matters, in a way that helps those who don't know Christ to become Christians, and that helps those of us who do know Christ to mature into strong followers of Jesus, that all of us who are his children may live the lives we've been given as ambassadors of Christ, that we may live our lives to serve the one who redeemed us and saved us from our slavery to sin. I'm going to close with a prayer of Martin Luther that he based on Psalm 90. Please pray along with me as I finish. O Lord, eternal God, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom, embracing Christ and his gospel as your wisdom and your counsel for our salvation. Grant us peace to walk honestly as in the day that when our last hour is come, we may be found in true faith and godliness, ready to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.